welcome to the Weird Era podcast. Today we're talking to author Michael LaPointe, author of The Creep. Michael LaPointe's writing has appeared in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The New York Times, and The Times Literary Supplement. He writes the Dice Roll column for the Paris Review. His fiction has appeared in The Walrus and Hazlitt. He has been nominated for the National Magazine Awards, the Journey Prize, and the Digital Publishing Awards, and his fiction has been anthologized in Best Canadian Stories. He lives in Toronto. In The Creep, a respected byline in the culture pages of the venerable New York magazine The Bystander, a journalist, Whitney Chase, grapples with a mysterious compulsion to enhance her coverage with intriguing untruths and undetectable white lies. She calls it The Creep, an overpowering need to improve the story in the telling. And she has a particular genius for getting away with it. In the immediate aftermath of 9-11, Whitney yearns to transition from profiling rock stars and novelists to covering the stories that really matter. When a chance encounter brings her face-to-face with a potentially massive story about a game-changing medical discovery, Whitney believes she's finally found a story that doesn't need any enhancement. The brilliant and charismatic doctor behind the breakthrough claims she's found the holy grail of medical science, a synthetic blood substitute that, if viable, promises to save millions of lives and make her corporate backers rich beyond measure. But when Whitney's investigation of this apparent medical miracle puts her on the trail of a string of grisly fatalities across the country, she becomes inexorably tied to a much darker and more nefarious story than even she could imagine. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So this novel is filled with a lot of unreality. Um, Whitney's symptom of creeping being the prime example, um, the immediate example, but even the exploration of synthetic blood and, of course, the general investigation throughout the book of, you know, what constitutes as truth or not. What about unreality interests you? Um, Well, I guess it's like a bit of a reaction, you could say, to the school of realism that so predominates um, in uh, in literary fiction. Um, <clears throat> not to say that I, I am desirous of writing fantasy or like outright, you know, mag- so-called magical realism, um, incorporating truly fantastical elements into the work. But I do tend to prefer a, a, a type of realism that I, I like to think of as reality adjacent, um, which is to say it, it has the kind of outward appearance of realism but the the elements are are heightened um uh the 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 feel of the book um has an artificial flavor that gives it um a kind of um a kind of synthetic quality um that lays bare some of the ways in which fiction is manufactured so it sort of um it sort of presents itself as realism outwardly but the the, the more you drift into the book um the more it begins to seem like a, uh, an artificial world, which I think then allows you as the writer to, um, to, to, to kind of wield the material metaphorically, as opposed to, um, sort of journalistically, you can use the, the, the elements to build, um, a symbol or an elaborate sort of world of symbols that says something, um, um, through metaphor, as opposed to like, directly speaking to it or directly representing it as real. It's interesting to me that you say it's kind of a response to realism in fiction. You know, I think you are pinpointing something um, very present in contemporary fiction in particular. Um, What was your response to 
what is your response to this popularity in contemporary uh, fiction, if you are even a contemporary reader? Um, um, well, I, I mean, I, I love realism and respect it as a as a genre. Um, I just think that it's uh, it's it's like one genre among many and one choice among many that you can make. Um, it's not. Uh, you know, realism isn't if it's, it's an effect. It's not actually real. Like, you know, it always is a novel, no matter what, inescapably it is a fiction. Um, and so you can, it's, it's really just the degree to which you bring the fiction into proximity with reality rather than like actually being real or, you know, actually imitating reality. Um, even a book that's considered like a foundational text of realism, like, Madame Bovary or something like that. If you read it, it's it's so artificial, it's so uh, it's so authorially determined and arranged um, that it doesn't actually have a documentary feel to it at all. Um, instead, it has a such a powerful realist with a kind of capital R effect um, that once we go back and wander back into our real lives, we begin to see uh, its resonances in our real lives. But that doesn't mean that the book was like more real than, I don't know, like Don Quixote or something like that. Some more um, sort of uh, artificial and and sort of um, ostentatiously artificial work. Um, So I I don't mean to impugn realism or to suggest that like I don't I don't like those books or that I'm rejecting them in any way. It's just that um, it's just that I I sort of take a step back and see it as just one choice that you can make. Uh, among many, and that that's not always it's, that's doesn't have to be the default uh, way in which you write if you're working in the in the literary form. On page one hundred nine, Whitney reflects: It seems ridiculous now that an entire industry could go so long believing people wanted facts when, in fact, they crept like me. This throws some serious shade at the field of journalism, but more importantly, it challenges the idea of objectivity. W- what do you think are the Pros and cons are the words I have written down here, but the, you know, of bringing oneself to an experience from a place of distrust. What does it bring and what does it take away? Well, I mean, that line, it does, like you say, sort of um, attack journalism. But I think when I wrote it, I was really sort of turning it on myself more so, or tra- training that critique on myself. Um, you know, I, I, I was raised... Uh, to trust uh, journalism, to trust the media, to believe that objectivity was something that people were striving to achieve and that it was achievable. Um, This is the sort of like childish, naive um, conception of what you read in the newspaper. Um, And uh, the book obviously is set at that post 9-11 period, which for me, I was like 14 years old in that, in that timeframe. Um, it's set at that as a kind of key inflection moment when it really did feel as if um, the news was becoming a tool of propaganda um, and that people were kind of aware of this and not altogether upset by it. That, in fact, it was the beginning of the moment that we are living in now um, where it's become sort of a, just a, a everyday truth to say that people are sort of living within their own media silo wherein they get the information that is styled most to them uh, culturally, ideologically, and so forth. 
Um, I sort of set the book at this time because I, I wanted to, to get at that, to the root of that, um, at least for me and my generation's experience of that. I mean, I, th- I think you could definitely say that like Vietnam also was a period where these sorts of these, these this phenomenon was, was very near to the surface. But for me and my own sort of psychological biographical development, um, the post 9-11 period was when I began to realize that, you know, objectivity was not, uh, was, was not what was being strived for and was perhaps not achievable and perhaps not even desirable, um, to achieve. Um, so yeah, while, while I was attacking journalism, the best way that I could get into that and embody that attack was just to, to turn it on myself and try to recall how, how naive I was and to think about that the industry did operate under this naivete, um, that now it's sort of, uh, now, now that, that illusion is completely dispelled at this point and the media sort of embraced, uh, to a certain extent anyway, embraced its, its role as a subjective force as opposed to an objective one. But even, um, the lens that you bring to the narrative in this book, um, reads to me like, I mean, it's literally the, you, you, your main character is literally a journalist, but so in that way, the narrative reads to me also from a perspective of distrust. Um, she's literally trying to solve, you know, a, a case, so to speak, to, to, to break out this article. Um, there's obvious like criticisms of systems and, and governments and people in charge and is this real and what's not happening. And um, it seemed to me, and you can, you know, tell me if I'm, I misread, but it seems to me that you're interested in that you want to really consider what can be gained from looking at a place of distrust. Does that make sense? Was that right? Am I wrong? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're not wrong. It's it, it, the book does function in a lot of ways as a critique of like the cognition under which people within this career operate. Um, I, I love it's a, it's a, it's a theme that seems to like that even when I think I'm not writing about it, I always circle back to it. It always appears in, in so many of the things that I write, but I love that moment of um, sort of disillusionment. The moment when someone who is intellectual, cerebral, uh, professional in control of their environment, in control of their methodology, the moment when that breaks down or the moment when that becomes actually the sort of tool of their undoing, which is, you know, what the creep sort of dramatizes someone who, um, in, in Whitney's case, she's out of her field of expertise, but she still is, uh, applying the methodology of journalism, uh, to this new field for her. And, um, the sort of arrogance that goes along with that, um, the, the, the arrogance of the, of, uh, of the, the journalistic, uh, uh, method, um, that if that it can somehow you know wrap its arms around any topic um, and can do justice to it, I wanted to sort of dramatize uh, a, a break or a fissure in that in that method, so that um, by the end of the book she's completely lost in a, in a totally uh, in, a, in a in a realm that's so indistinct um, and, and has uh, is so confusing. Um, I, I always I always seem to go back to that to. to People who are smart who find out how stupid they are, basically, to put it as simple as I can. At the book's end, on page 295, a question is asked, would it have been different in the telling? But you're a novelist. You know it would have. 
is it always different in the telling regardless of form? Like, I, I'm, I'm asking you about truth now. <laughs> Very chilly. I'm asking you about truth, capital T. <laughs> um, I, am, I am sort of skeptical of the view that um, uh, this, this sort of idea that, like, telling a story uh, functions cathartically and that, you know, it somehow alleviates the burden of the story. Uh, this is such a cliche that we've, I think, received from, you know, talk therapy uh, and perhaps from the confessional booth before that. This idea that putting words to an experience will somehow alleviate the, the emotional burden of that experience. Right. Um, I, 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 I'm personally skeptical of that. You know, I think I and that too. could be, yeah, that that could be because I work with words that I, you know, the more you work with them, the more skeptical you become of their sort of power to make things happen. They're sort of their, their magical power sort of gets um, uh, demystified as you, when you, when you just working with this material all the time. Um, so instead I wanted to, I wanted to create a story that is overtly the story that she's not telling um, the story that she's kept inside. And I wanted the story to be almost like a worm that's just like eating deeper and deeper into her. Um, so it makes sense that by the end of the book, she's asking herself, would this, would the emotional experience of carrying this story be different if I could somehow put words to it, if I could somehow tell it? Um, and as the reader would find out, there's very real good reasons why she can't tell this story. Um, but you know, she, she, she wonders whether, uh, whether this catharsis would be possible in the telling. Um, she doesn't really know. She can't know. Um, my own feeling is that probably the answer is, is no. You know, you might find some temporary relief from it, but, you know, what, what happens in the book uh, is so catastrophic for her um, that I don't, think, I don't think mere language could really do anything for her. On page 40, Whitney says, and as I learn, a public lie is never really over. I think there, there's this general understanding in our society, you know, it's moral morality at its core. Lying is bad, um, but also especially bad if we think about the idea of getting caught. Um, so when I think of Whitney's tendency to creep, to embellish stories, I'm thinking about this very question. It makes me wonder if this veneration we put on, again, truth with a capital T is maybe misguided. You know, maybe instead truth is actually just too much knowledge. I feel like Whitney bears the burden of this very question throughout the entire novel. And I was just wondering what your thoughts are there. Do you think that the more knowledge that's possessed, the more it alters reality away from a place of truth? And, and I'm particularly curious to hear your thoughts on that as a novelist. You know, you're sort of someone who makes things up professionally. Um, yeah, it sort of goes back to <clears throat> what I just mentioned this, this, this idea of the, the arrogance of knowledge, I guess, you know, the, the more you know, obviously, um, you know, there are many advantages to that. And in some important regards, the less susceptible you are to deception. But I do think that um, part of the sort of double-edged uh, nature of knowledge <clears throat> is that it can engender this, um, this, this arrogance, this belief that um, because I understand X, I will understand Y. Um, and, you know, Whitney definitely falls, falls prey to that as so many journalists, um, have and continue to do. Um, that's sort of part of the, that's part of what makes her such an ideal, um, mark, so to speak for the, the, the con artistry of this, uh, artificial blood substitute is that it's, it's clear 
um, she really projects the image of of the knowledgeable, uh, sophisticated, worldly journalistic expert, and that actually ironically makes her susceptible to deception as opposed to like uh, a threat. Um, as for that line about you know the public lie, the idea of a public lie, that's very much you know getting to the books again sort of historical um, uh, position in the lead up to the Iraq war, the idea that um, the public lie in this case um, being the, uh, the erroneous um, manufactured belief that uh, Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction that was used as the, the, the pretext for the invasion in 2003. Um, the, the way in which once a lie is transfused into the public record, once it, once it kind of um, is a, is a, is a fiction that gains the trappings of fact and becomes a, a sort of a, a subjective uh, notion that invades the, the so-called objective and becomes implanted there and fixed there. That just then becomes history. That then becomes um, the, the, uh, the uh, another sort of uh, uh, hinge in in a, in a, a larger series of events. Um, and so, and that just goes on forever. You know, you can never get that out. It will. It will always be there, even even once it's identified retrospectively as fiction. It will still be there forever, um, as though it were fact. I think a good novelist should be able to do what you've accomplished in this book, which is to fully inhabit a character outside of their own identities. Um, in this book, you accomplish this by embedding yourself so specifically into a female character and consequently a specifically gendered personhood. I think this is something, again, a good novelist should be able to accomplish, but I do wonder if it's ambitious. Did it feel ambitious? Um, no, not really. I, That's refreshing. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, but again, you sort of, um, you, you try to sort of play to your um, strengths and avoid your weaknesses, I suppose. Um, you know, Correct me if I'm wrong if your reading differs, but for me, Whitney is, uh, while she is female, she, she's not like a distinctly feminine uh, voice or character. I, I think that if you sort of fooled around with the um, pronouns of the, the book and, and ch- switched them around, I don't think that the reader would necessarily feel like this is a, this is a female voice and I can tell even though you know, the, the pronouns are all inverted or whatever you want to say. Um, I, she's, a, she presents very coldly and she presents in a very controlled way. And her voice is the, is a journalistic voice. I, I, I thought of her as having a voice that was sort of like a house style of a magazine. So when you read a magazine, you know, there's a, there's a consistency between the voices that has some variation, but is relatively stable throughout a magazine there's always that that house style that that tonality and i felt like if i could if i could sort of bring her toward me with a house style and i could push my imagination toward her then we could somehow sort of meet in that uh in between and it would be it would be a viable voice um and as for the stuff that she does present as you know female i guess the sex scenes or whatever you know stuff like that um that that just felt like just listening to what people have told me over the years and just you know sticking with it. <laughs> There's nothing really. I'm too, so yeah too pleased about that. Um, that we have a different reading of your work <laughs> in this way. Um, I, I I think I 
I, I'm clearly bringing my own experience forth as a reader when I was, you know, like creating a relationship with this text. But um, I thought about the gendered ideas behind this book a lot, um, especially when it came to two things. Whitney's, as you pointed out, is essentially, well, you talked about a sex scene, but is essentially sexually accosted by men at certain points. And also finds yourself developing a platonic romance, a very specific thing that can happen in female friendships in particular. She unintentionally develops this mentorship with the main doctor, uh, you know, the person behind the synthetic blood project, even in the very narrative of the book itself, which has Whitney being interviewed by a younger female journalist who seems to sort of admire Whitney for all her accomplishments these were the aspects to me that felt quite gendered um they were specific experiences when it comes to a woman living through these these lives um these i didn't want to say experiences again but these uh relationships um and i guess i'm just wondering what drew you to exploring the female perspective in this way but you've sort of already answered you you weren't intentionally trying to do that um but that those were the ways in which i read it yeah yeah. Um, well, I think you're right in terms of the content of the book. Like that's, that is, um, that, that was deliberately trying to explore those, those ideas. Um, I was speaking just a minute ago more so about like the, the style or the tone or like the voice, right. I guess, um, the way that she presents that, the, the, the formal way that she, the way she formalizes that content. Right. Um, but certainly it's, you're certainly right that you couldn't just invert the, the pronouns and have those scenes make any sense at all. Um, <laughs> right. But uh, yeah. Um, well, the, I wrote this book in 2018 and um, at the time female friendship was sort of like a recurring um, uh, sort of motif in contemporary fiction. Um, and uh, there are a lot of great books written on that subject. And um I, I wanted to sort of ironize that, I guess, contribute to it in an ironic way, which would be to take um, to take a female friendship and just sort of pervert it almost, mm-hmm. in, almost on every level. Um, to take the, the the subject of female mentorship, but turn it into more of a, a sort of cat and mouse game of a of a con artist and a mark um, to put it kind of to to reduce it as much as possible. Um, I thought that would be just like a kind of fresh way to to play with this idea that was circulating at the, at the time. Um, and the, the sexual assaults, it just, that just seemed to be, um, uh, almost a given, um, you know, 2018 was the year of the tragedy of Kim wall, the, right. the journalist who was murdered on the job. And, um, it seemed to me like it would be, um, you know, frankly, unbelievable if I had a female journalist who didn't confront uh, sexual harassment, um, over the course of her work. Um, it just seemed like that would be, I would be kind of remiss in my, in my duties to like, to, to, to put forward this character if, if I didn't touch on that. Um, the reality is important also, to you in your fiction. <laughs> in some ways. Yes. But again, it's like, it's about the proximity, right? It's right. like, um, I, I like the, I like to take a, I, I begin from a very artificial place, which is this, this story, this plot, which is, which is, you know, very, um, outlandish in many regards. Um, and then sort of take it and just push it toward reality as far as it will go. Um, but without kind of ever intersecting it, cause it just can't be, it just can't, you can't uh, make a story like this true or, or even particularly realistic. Um, 
yeah, certainly like I'm inspired by reality, but my way of dealing with that is to um, channel it into a more kind of outlandish and artificial plot that then becomes a, a metaphor of reality as opposed to a documentary uh, experience. But I was, I, I was, I designed it, I wanted it to be a horror novel. That was like the first thing that I mm-hmm. thought about doing. Um, and, you know, a, a horror uh, film or a novel will always have a, a, a sort of um, a few motifs that it just hits on again and again and again. Things that are scary, things, the elements that are sort of spooked in the course of the book. And uh, it seemed to me that because I had a, a female journalist character, that sort of like scary penises would be one of the <laughs> things that I would have as my horror element. Um, you know, because again, it's just, you know, listening to my friends who are women over the years, it's like a, a, a part of everyday reality that like, you know, there's some scary penises out there basically <laughs> um, to put it as bluntly as possible. Um, so yeah, you know, the book has a, has a series of, um, of uh, sort of spooky penises. Um, I mean, it's interesting because it literally is my next question is I wanted to know if you, you know, as a reader have an affinity for mystery novels and horror novels, but particularly I'm wondering what about a disturbed mood appeals to you? Because that's what this book was for me. And a beautiful, entertaining, really happy to be there, disturbed mood. (laughs) Um, you know, I actually don't read a lot of mystery and horror. Mm -hmm. Um, my taste is very like, it very much runs to like literary fiction. Um, I don't read a lot of genre fiction, Mm -hmm. uh, though my, my, the fiction that I write tends to have a lot of genre elements in it for some reason or another. I really can't quite square that circle. Um, um, what, what appealed to me about the horror, there's so many things, but um, it's really horror films that I that I was inspired by as opposed to um, uh, horror novels. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are better films than there are novels in the horror genre. But um, the, the basic one was just like, once you was, I, for me, my favorite part of a horror film is always the beginning when everything is like kind of okay right. uh, still. But because you are aware as the viewer that you're that you're watching a horror, mm-hmm. you've decided that you're you're watching a horror. You've chosen. You volunteered for this experience. You, your your attention is so focused. You're you're narrowed in on um, on every little element and asking yourself what it means. And uh, that that's a degree of attention that you just don't get invested uh, from the from the reader in in almost any other genre. Um, cause the reader's always wondering, you know, where's the ghost going to like mm-hmm. explode out of or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, and so it just heightens the attention so quickly. And I thought it would be just fun to write a novel that because of its status as a horror novel, and presumably the reader will be cognizant of that when they open the first page that from the very beginning, they just have this attempt they just have this degree of attention, attentiveness, um, that you can then manipulate and use to, uh, use as a, as a vessel to express some of the kind of broader, like historical or, um, cultural psychological themes of the book. Um, so that, that's what, that's what sort of attracted me to it. It was just like the, the investment that you get from the reader. I was a reader of this book and my experience of reading it 
was kind of, or the the entertainment and the, the pleasure I found in reading this book, I'm now realizing, especially hearing you, you know, describe it in the way that you are. The first, I also agree that the beginning is always kind of the best part in the horror movie for those very reasons. And there's something to me about this novel where it stretches out the whole way. You keep thinking it's <laughs> going to be the first couple of pages and then other things are explored and developed, but not quite you know, revealed necessarily. Um, and I think that was what I'm trying to say when I reference it as a disturbed mood. You're, you know, there, you would say that it's like you're sitting on the edge of your seat, but that's not quite it either. You're just constantly wondering what is going on here. Um, and I think that a lot of people presumably find pleasure in that feeling. Um, you know, again, if you look at the rise of like horror novels and um, and just the horror genre in general. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what you think. I, I'm yet to really just, I'm yet to really decide whether this book actually is a horror book or not, or whether it's like a thriller. Um, I sort of, I, I tend to distinguish between the, those two things by, um, in a thriller, you're worried about what's going to happen to the main character. Mm-hmm. Like, are they going to get out of the situation or whatever? Mm-hmm. In a horror, you're worried about what's going to happen to you, mm-hmm. the audience. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when I watch The Shining or whatever, like I am worried about whether Shelley Duvall is going to escape from crazy Jack Nicholson. Mm-hmm. But I'm more worried about whether when the movie's over, like the twins are going to be like in my bedroom or whatever. <laughs> like that's that's the more kind of pertinent question for me as the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I set out to do a horror and I usually like in the kind of blockbuster video section way that I distinguish between genres. Um, I usually aim for one and then sort of miss it and land somewhere else. I don't really know if the book actually is a horror novel or whether it's like a a thriller with horror elements or something like that. Um, I think at least by my definition, I'm not sure it qualifies. Yeah. Right. There's like the academic criticism. I was a book publicist for some time. So I think from a marketing angle, it, it, it absolutely hits the thriller um, benchmark, but um, again, as, as just a reader outside of that marketing world, I think it hits the horror um, genre mostly because horror is this, um, unveiling of that which we're afraid to see, right? Or that, or the reality that mm. we don't want to see, right? That's why go- I'm very interested in gore and violence for those reasons. I have no appetite for gore and violence, um, but I think the the concept of it is um, very interesting to me because I understand why it is so disturbing. And again, I keep using these words, disturbed mood, to describe the book. Um, but there's a lot that's being explored that I didn't feel comfortable sitting in um and Mm. that can be kind of really fun when you're sort of confronted with it anyways like look at it look at it look at um what you know people are capable of what in in the uncomfortable conversation in which morality gets skewed all of these characters are susceptible um to that and i think in that way to me it felt like a horror read does that make sense yeah i mean i'm glad I'm, I'll, I'll gladly take that. I mean, I, I do see the, <laughs> I do see the horror genre as sort of like thriller elevated or something like that. So right, right. I'm, I'm happy to, to have that. Yeah, yeah. Something there truly about um, unveiling that which we presumably normally repress because it's just too scary to think about or too uncomfortable to think about. And it brings it again into this idea of like um, its relationship to to realism. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I think a good horror uh, story, whether it's a novel or a film, does is that it sort of spooks something that is um, 
like part of everyday, the texture of everyday reality. Um, so, you know, uh, a movie like Rosemary's Baby or something like that makes renting an apartment, which is an everyday thing that people do. Right. Very terrifying. It, it, it makes it like a portal into the terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I always think about The Shining. I dream about that movie like every four nights, basically. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. And one of the reasons for that is because <laughs> it's okay. One of the reasons for that is because it, it, it spooks like architectural space itself. It just makes like going into a hotel lobby like scary. Um, and, I, you know, the, the way in which the creep attempts to do that is to again, invoke like this, the met, the world of medicine, mm-hmm. um, the, the way in which in everyday experience, like visiting a doctor or just being in an accident that, you know, may, requires medical attention, that that will suddenly again, be that portal that sort of plunges you into the, into the unspeakable or, or the, 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 that which cannot be uh, revealed or whatever, however you think of it. Um, and that kind of, that brings the book even as fan, as outlandish as it is, and as implausible in many regards as it is, that that sort of again is one of the places where it touches the real, um, it touches the everyday. That it can sort of spook some element of your everyday experience, and um, and I guess you know, and ruin it for you, <laughs> ruin it, ruin your life. <laughs> no, it didn't ruin my life, but it, it's disturbing, and and I mean, that's not a negative criticism. Consumers of you know, you can call it art, you can call it entertainment, you can call it stories, call it TV, whatever you want to call it. This is um, exciting. Sitting in that in that in that place is is actually one of pleasure, even though um, it's it's it shouldn't be. There are some. There's like one specific quality that seems to me that actually touches on some physical. I mean, it's the closest thing you can call it to gore, I guess. But there are scenes in the book without revealing too much. You know where. Um, people's physical appearances are really made predominant and m- almost monstrous. Um, I think that's, I think that's the closest way I can describe it without spoiling, uh, <laughs> without any spoiler yeah, alerts. Body horror, basically. Yeah. Sort of like, yeah. And yeah. those scenes were totally spooky. Um, and I, I don't think that was a coincidence <laughs> at all. Um, there also seems to be a certain exploration of class in this novel, especially when we think about the kinds of people this project of synthetic blood is tested upon, questions of who's deemed worthy or unworthy in the name of progression, um, you know, how far people will go for a dollar, a million dollars, a billion dollars. Is that right? Is that something you were thinking about? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, part of this, one of the one of the elements of this book that is most sort of important to me is the sort of gentrification horror uh, element of it. Um, the way in which uh, communities, vulnerable communities are identified, uh, exploited, uh, and then eradicated and overwritten mm. um, was something that that I really wanted to dramatize uh, over the course of the book, um, which is why it sort of takes place in these three different cities, uh, each of which have uh, a neighborhood or, or area uh, of, of sort of vulnerable citizens that uh, this doctor sort of preys upon to to derive her test subjects from, and uh, over the course of the book, we see how those communities are exploited and um, and eventually, by the end of the book, they're sort of just vanished and disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, this was this was a very important element to me, uh, and again, because it uh, it is part of the the realism of the book, as outlandish as the way in which the book goes about dramatizing it may be. Right. Um, 
it again, it's a metaphor for something that is true that does happen, uh, that does happen within the, the world of medicine, um, within the world of development, uh, city planning, all these different things. Um, we, you know, you see it, you see it in every city. Um, so even though my cities are fictional, um, they are metaphorical of the processes that have determined uh, life in virtually every North American city in the 21st century. Whitney is explored as a sort of standoffish character. And, you know, we're talking a lot about the kind of like dread in this, in this, in this book throughout, but you humanize her with these occasional pockets of experience with her mother. Um, someone who may or may not be the root cause of her standoffishness in the first place. I say you humanize her, but really you reveal her like childlike fragility, which, you know, is maybe saying the same thing in a, in a different way. But I'm wondering why you felt the need to sprinkle that throughout this through this otherwise tense and dark novel? Um, you know, I, I actually, at, for in, the, in, in the early drafts of the book, I didn't feel that need really at all. I, my, I, I wanted Whitney to be a very hard-boiled character, like a sort of noir detective. Um, like you don't, when, you, when you're reading like a, you know, a Sam Spade novel, you don't ask like, how did he get this way? You know, it's just like, right. there's a sort of, spontaneous arrival of the the private detective personality and they you know they have no biography and and no psychology almost they're just a sort of machine of 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 the job and i thought it would be kind of refreshing to have a have that same sort of personality be a uh female journalist um the as I presented the book to others and just sort of meditated it on myself over the, the few years of, of revising it, um, I began to realize that I was, I was a- asking too much probably of any reader uh, as far as like forming an attachment to her because she um, has the creep as a psychological and professional problem where she embellishes her stories and without giving too much away because of the the actions that she undertakes over the course of the novel, I found it, it became almost impossible that uh, a reader would form an attachment to her um, right. without giving her some kind of biographical underpinning, um, some degree of, if not tenderness exactly, just like um, biographical explanation for how she got this way. Uh, I couldn't just make her like a spontaneously arriving private detective style character. Um, it just didn't, didn't quite work. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to just not, not humanize her, but just sort of, uh, give her a little bit more texture so that the reader would feel a little bit attached to her, which again, and, and still like many reader responses are of the variety of like, she's so unsympathetic that no one, Goodreads. that you can't like her or whatever. You're talking about Goodreads, I presume. <laughs> Goodreads. <laughs> not only Goodreads, okay. but yes, of course. Because <laughs> that's a classic um, Goodreads like response in, in my perspective. It is, but it's also a classic just like of like every, every day reader response. Um, so yeah, it's like, um, yeah, it's, it's something that I became sort of like wary of just again, it's like, I don't mind making that demand on a reader. It just has to be for a good reason. And it didn't seem in the end that it would be like worth it to make such a great demand upon the reader's sympathy. It seemed like it would be, um, a ri- it, would, it would add. It would only add to the story and not detract from it by giving her these moments of, of sort of like biographical um, explication. And so, uh, so, yeah, I went with that, and it, I I ended up enjoying those scenes uh, quite 
quite a lot, actually, yeah. Um, author and book critic Lauren Euler blurbed her book. She said, it's so refreshing to read a novel from an author who actually seems like they were alive when they wrote it. Is that right? Was writing the writing process <laughs> was the writing process one of uh, sharpness, alertness, aliveness? Does that feel like accurate? Well, I mean, I don't want to speak for Lauren. Um, you know, that's like a characteristic barb from uh, from from Lauren. Um, <laughs> yeah, she would hate that. My don't blurb to subtweet all other writers. <laughs> um, I. Uh, well, I, I, I can't, I, I won't speak for her, but for me personally, I do like to have fun when I write. Mm-hmm. I have a bit of a superstitious feeling that, um, that like that, that the, the, the energy of the writer sort sort of conveys to the reader, no matter how artfully you attempt to disguise it. Um, I feel like I read novels and I can just tell that the writer is sort of just getting through the material as opposed to like enjoying writing it. Right. Um, and it just seems like art making should be fun, even if the even if it's very even if it's very difficult and very like dark and serious material. If in the making you're not uh, enjoying that process in some way, um, you know, I, th- I think like that that will convey. That can't be. That's not true of all subject matters, of course. Mm-hmm. But like for the most part, um, especially for most of what people write about in their novels. Um, I think that 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 should be the case. Um, So, yeah, I like to have high energy when I'm writing. I like to have, um, you know, to be to be relishing the process of being in this very blessed position where you get to, like, write a novel. Um, You know, I think that that's that's not something I take lightly. And so I try to try to enjoy it. Um, Yeah, but I don't know what Lauren's talking about. We we debated, (laughs) like, whether or not it was just such a funny line that I was like, I have to keep this in the blur. No, but but it's also interesting um, for you to. (laughs) You know, I, I talk to so many different kinds of authors, and there's the cliche of, uh, you know, if you're a real writer, then the last thing you ever want to do is write. You just procrastinate and procrastinate, and you hate it, and you hate getting to the page. Um, and then the idea that once you're in it, it's your favorite thing in the world. Um, you know, I've also read and heard from writers who think that um, writing is the most enjoyable experience for them. To them, it's, you know, a, I, I, we had an author recently, Sophie McCreesh, who who talked about um, how writing was literally creating your ideal companion because you're creating this entity that you have to hang out with all the time. And so you're going to make it an entity you want to hang out with all the time. But again, these are very differing perspectives. So my question wasn't so much Mm -hmm. about um, getting, you know, Lauren right here. It was more about just knowing (laughs) um, if you um, are one of those writers who has a good experience to, to writing, to, to this yeah, thing. I, yeah, I do. I, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I guess it's like, if, if you, if you're one of those writers who says like that writing is really painful, then you're, you're implying that what you have to say is so important that you have to, that you have the duty to go through this unpleasant experience of writing it, of it out. Right. Um, and I, I could not, I will not like arrogate to myself that, that, that level of like self-importance that what I have to say is so like necessary for other people to know that I must sacrifice my own self to get it down on the page. That's not at all how it is for me. You know, you as a writer, you don't like, no one asks you to do this, you know, like no one, it's, it's always a presumptuous, uh, job 
to be like, I'm going to make a novel and then try to create a market for my novel, um, try to invent a readership out of nothing. Um, no one's asking you, no one ever is like asking you to write a novel. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, I mean, I bring, I bring a, a pleasurable and sort of joyous uh, attitude toward that. It's not like I'm writing with a smile on my face sure. all day long, but, but, um, but I love the, the process to me is the most fun is the most rewarding part of writing. It's um, publishing is too sort of like precious, a, a thing to ever rely upon. Um, mm -hmm. Reader response is like something you may never receive for many things that you write. So the only thing that you can rely upon is the process of writing. Um, and that's what I enjoy the most is just, is just on is the next is always the next thing. And what that's going to be like, Thank you so much, Michael. This is great. Um, St. Henry customers and anyone else listening, um, you can pick up a copy of The Creep on the Weird Era shelf or probably at your local uh, bookseller, um, which I encourage you all to do. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much. Thank you.